Welcome to the Now You Know Podcast with Dominic Jeffries and Nick Sassage. A non-traditional look at competitive youth, high school, and collegiate sports. Helping players and families with insights and information to help you on your athletic journey. This episode of the Now You Know Podcast is sponsored by the Now You Know How to Get Recruited 5-Part Online Recruiting Seminar. You can follow and get more information on Instagram at MindsetPerformance2022 and catch me on Twitter at Coach D. Jeffries. Today we are talking to former NCAA coach, author, and speaker, Walter Beatty. Walter, welcome to the Now You Know podcast. First, I want to start with just a little history of your experience in youth and club baseball. If I go back to like 1998, my oldest son was eight years old. Um, The advent of AAU baseball was a creation from AAU basketball. Um, And people started to see... Um, kind of that carryover from Little League All-Stars into that, hey, if we kept our All-Star team together all the way up, you know, maybe we'd have, you know, a good team to go to the high school. So they created these travel teams, but they didn't really, you know, it was more regional. Like it started for the most part on the West Coast, down South, and it, it hit the Northeast probably three or four years later. Um, but what it's become today, so if I go back to my youngest son who played for the Canes national team, you know, a guy named Jeff Petty, you know, he started to see the demand uh, grow from, hey, we got this 14 through 17 team. Let's start really, you know, including, you know, tournaments and let's start including showcases. And, you know, so he created dynamic baseball on top of the Canes travel organization. And if you look at him today, he has over 500 teams across the country and he has a baseball academy. So it's literally grown into this mega business that has now attracted large corporate entities. And I'm talking billions of dollars uh, from around the world. I mean, if you look at IMG just bought, you know, uh, NCSA, if you look at the hedge fund companies that purchased both Perfect Game and PBR, I mean, we're talking mega corporations that are now at the at the root of this entire thing that parents absolutely have no idea it goes on. And that was kind of our, our, our goal, Walt, is to get that information out, right? Because, I mean, I guess just ethically and morally, it's not like I'm trying to be the, the baseball police. I'm not interested in doing that. But I'm seeing so many families who, it's just what you said, it's they're paying this outrageous amount of money in hopes of accessing and gaining this advantage, and they're not going to. And it may not be simply the the organization's not going to be able to produce, but their player may just not be at the caliber to play at that level, but they're being sold, you know, a roster spot on the third team down. I mean, they're never going to make it to the main fields. They're never going to compete in these big tournaments, et cetera. And they're not practicing. It's like, okay, if we go to these tournaments, we're going to see these college coaches. That's where we're going to get seen. That's where we're going to sign our letters. That's where we're going to get a college but they're not even prepared at the basic levels of academically, physically skill set, even if that did happen. And so that's really how we started. We're just like, we got to disseminate this information out there and we got to get it because the culture is changing so rapidly here. Well, I think it's changing rapidly everywhere. We were going into the co- the virus, the shortened high school, college. There was no summer baseball. You know, my cell phone was blowing up 
calls and text messages from parents. What do we do? And, and, and I found it to be odd that it was as if the playgrounds and the backyards just didn't exist. Right. You, you know, it was almost like, you know, when you know how to ride a bike, whether you rode it last week, last year, or 10 years ago, you still know how to ride a bike. When you're playing catch and, you know, there's no more organic baseball. There's no more, hey, let's go to the ballpark, play wiffle ball, or, you know, adults are playing wiffle ball, but you don't see a lot of kids, you know, playing at the sandlot or just going to play in the schoolyard or whatever. So that's what led me to to really start to write a lot of these books because I thought it was really a unique situation where children weren't just going out and playing catch or playing baseball and parents weren't just, you know, dropping kids off at the ballpark and or kids riding their bikes to the ballpark. And suddenly that organized structure had, you know, been taken away and it was complete chaos. Nobody knew what to do. And so what has really at the essence and at the core of youth sports, all sports, not just particularly baseball has become this organized uh you know the uniform the apparel the gate fees the parking fees the lessons i call it the hamster wheel of youth sports and what happens is is that mom or dad are kind of overwhelmed you know they're working two jobs they don't get to spend a lot of time with jimmy or sally and so therefore okay well i'm just going to take them for a lesson at five or six years old as a way to introduce uh, their children to to baseball you know, and then from the lesson comes, well, we have a team and, you know, we, we we call the little sluggers and we have a 6U team. And that's really what drives me nuts is they start as young as six. And so before the advent of travel sports, there was just youth leagues, CYO, church leagues, mm-hmm. local little leagues, rec ball, et cetera. And, you know, they had their season and then you would go from one season to the next. Well, now it has become, okay, if you're not traveling, if you're not taking lessons, if you don't have an instructor, you know, that used to be for the moms that wanted to take golf lessons or tennis lessons at the country club. Well, now, oh, my son has a pitching coach. Oh, my son has a hitting coach, et cetera. And they've become so reliant on the organized component that they feel that one has to take the next step from instruction to travel team, from travel teams to showcases and tournaments. In in reality, the numbers, even today, will tell you that between two and four million young children will play youth baseball and softball in the United States. That number has been pretty much the same. It fluctuates, but it's pretty much the same for decades. And that once they hit the big diamond of 13 years old, 14 years old, probably close to two-thirds of that number goes in different directions, different sports, different extracurricular activities. And so you're left with this number of, let's call it a million athletes that try the big diamond from 13 to 15. After the age of 15, or those high school years, as I call it, between freshman, junior varsity, and varsity baseball, in the United States, less than a half a million students. And from that half a million students at the high school level, less than 50,000 play college baseball. So if you just break the numbers down, because there's no more, you know, there's no greater roster opportunity. So even if, you know, out of the half a million or 400,000 high school players, there are not that many roster spots 
for all these student athletes that may want to play. So the narrative of travel baseball at the essence of it is one big fundamental myth. It's a lie. And that's what you're dealing with. So, so to backtrack a little bit, you know, and and say, we'll start that six U level when you have parents reach out to you and they're asking you, all right, I have this opportunity. What should I do? What's your answer? I always, always, and every parent that's ever reached out to me from the ages of six through 12, and I, and I'm out here banging a drum and I'll die on this hill on social media or wherever else. There's no need for travel baseball. None. You know, the narrative of it's more competitive and they just play a lot of term- tournaments. It's a lot of games and not a lot of practices. So therefore, there's not a lot of repetition. So I tell parents, there's a wall, there's a ball, there's a broomstick, there's tennis balls, there's acorns, there's rocks. In fact, I have, over the last 25 years, worked with boys 6 to 12, and parents are amazed when I say, get them a broomstick, cut it to 30 inches, get them a bunch of tennis balls and whipple balls, and let them throw the ball in the air and just hit the ball all day. That's the best hitting lesson that you cannot spend money on. That's going to teach your son eye-hand coordination, and they're going to learn how to track, follow, and hit an object. Travel baseball, specifically, is the most overrated, inflated, fictitious you know, story that gets told by all of these business owners, you must come. And now that Perfect Game Youth Baseball Association has swallowed up USSSA, we're ranking children as young as eight years old? Really? Are we really going to be able to tell that the eight-year-old in Utah is better than the eight-year-old in Texas or Florida? That's all done for one reason to sell subscriptions. The more people they can rank, the more subscriptions parents will pay for, and they pay for them, and it's $9.99 or $19.99 from six years old all the way up to 18 years old. Add those numbers up in your head, and they're billions of dollars. Do you think overall um, this, this travel ball thing dilutes and hurts the overall opportunities for kids by the time they get to high school, they, you know, like you, you mentioned it and we've talked about it a lot too here is like hundred games, 10 practices, or should we play 20 games and have a hundred practices, right? Do you think it's hurting the quality of, of baseball player in the country? 1000% emphatically. Yes. All you have to do is look at major league baseball and watch the numbers of the foreign players versus the uh, domestic players that are playing at the, the game's highest level. It used to be maybe at its highest in, say, the from the 50s through the 80s and the early 90s. It was 80-20 as far as domestic versus foreign-born players. Now it's in, it, over 50% foreign-born players as of this year. So what's happened is practices don't make money. Games make money. You can't charge gate fees. You can't have a concession stand at a practice. If you don't have tournaments and you don't have games, you don't make money. And so what ends up happening is we we rush to get all these games in. If you literally talked with any member of Major League Baseball executive offices in New York City, they would tell you that they are afraid, deathly afraid of what's going on at the youth levels of baseball. They have tried 
all kinds of different ways, but the juggernaut in the business of youth sports does not allow them to kind of gain control back. They used to have it with their relationship with Little League. It's absolutely the worst thing that has ever happened to the sport of baseball is what it has become. Well, why are parents willing to pay for these? So, so say, say a time a parent travels, the time they pay their, their, their club fee, their travel fee, their plane tickets, their hotels, their food, et cetera. Why are they willing to spend, say, the $10,000 a summer on top of, say, the franchise fee for some national club, but then they balk at paying for development? And not, I'm not talking lessons. I'm talking about legitimate development, three to four practices a week, uh, academic training during the week, uh, uh, a mentor, finding a mentor that's managing and monitoring kind of what's going on. Is it because it's so exciting to try to win the trophy? The prize is, you know, the prize is bigger than, than doing the work. And, and, and I'm with you. I don't believe getting up at 5 30 a.m. You can say you grind. I think getting up at 5 30 a.m. is terrible and you're not going to get the best out of the athlete. Plus he's got to go to school, et cetera. But when you say, Hey, let's get him in here. Let's get an assessment. Let's work him out. Let's start working on the fundamentals of baseball. Well, we don't have a lot of time because we're scheduled to go to this tournament, then we're out of town for that tournament. Gosh, you know, I just don't think we can make that work. Why is that happening? Is it peer pressure between parents? What, what's going on there? Well, I think you, there's a couple of different answers to that question. The first one is validation. If I wear the jersey of, uh, you know, any, pick your team, pick your organization, if I have that name on my front, my son must be good. The other thing is, is that parents use this, let's just cut right to the chase and to the heart of the matter. It's a social activity, right? We see all the red cups in the outfield, the grill, the ta- tailgating. It's a social activity. I get to go to this place and that place, interact with parents, you know, at night, after games, after tournaments. So it's become part of the social culture for adults to kind of, you know, invest their time to go to a destination, whether it's in California, Florida, Texas, Georgia, New Jersey, et cetera. Uh, and everybody wants to now go to Cooperstown and places like that. And it's become part of the cachet to be able to say, hey, my son plays for Team X or Y or Z. The bigger part of this story is if we really break this whole thing down and we, we I, the numbers are factual. Any, anybody can look them up. But the average parent from the age of 6 through 16 over those 10 to 11 years is going to spend on average between five and $10,000 a year. And once they get older, and I live this, I can definitively tell you at the higher levels, at the, at the highest levels of travel ball, and I'm talking about when there's area codes, East Coast Pro, uh, used to be Tournament of t- Stars with Cary, North Carolina. Those summers were ten to $20,000. And I'm telling you, even if you were the thriftiest of parent, it's ten to fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. So what is happening is we have created a consumer from the age of six that is demanding. I am paying five thousand dollars. Therefore, I control playing time. I control. You're going to hear what I have to say. I want equal playing time. I want my son to pitch. I want him to play short stuff because we have con- the consumer is now the parent that is going. My checkbook tells me that I paid for lessons. I've paid for this team. My son should not be sitting on a bench. That's not sports. That's not how it works at the higher levels. And for all these parents that throw in my face, and I get arrows in my back every single day. 
well, it's not competitive in Little League anymore, and Johnny can't catch my Jimmy because my Jimmy throws hard, and Johnny is bad. He's brutally bad. Like, I've had parents call children, and I can show you this, trash. They they tell the they tell me that these students that can't keep up, they're trash. And so what we've had now is we are fearful for playing against older, bigger boys because the light on my son won't be as bright. If I play, if my son's 11 and he plays against a 12-year-old, well, he's going to get hurt because that 12-year-old is so big and as bad as hot. We have reduced the game of youth baseball to a video game. And parents think they can control every dynamic of their their young athlete's career. It just doesn't work that way. I think there's a you, – and you hit on it, right? But I think there's a perception that because I'm spending this money, there's going to be a certain outcome, right? And, and we have kids show up all the time, uh, you know, to come to work out for us or try out for us. And they play club, you know, on these name brand club teams, quote unquote, but they didn't even make their high school team. I can't even wrap my head around that. Right. So so what where does this expectation come from? Is it is it just what you said? I'm spending this money so I get this um, when that's not the reality of it. Or, or what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, this time of year, Massachusetts, where I am, is high school tryout season. And I cannot tell you the number of freshmen athletes that didn't make their freshman team, didn't make the JV team and ultimately didn't make the varsity team as a junior in high school and got cut. And what's happening is, is we are creating this false sense of security because every year there's no such thing now as a tryout. It's more like, okay, we have too many guys on our 11 year old team. Let's just create another 11 year old team and everybody's happy and including the pockets of the travel team owner. But what's happening now is we're all running into this brick wall that is waiting for us at high school level, particularly. And then there's another massive wall at the college level. And I think the parents' expectations are solely driven because every step of their journey with their with their student athlete, they've been told, oh, he's capable. Oh, he's good. Oh, he's going to be okay. Because they can't be told anything different because the money would stop. So you can't go out out of the – and you know this. If we had a trial, legitimate trial, and you were creating a 12-year-old team, and your 12-year-old team, you know the max roster I can take is 15. Okay, have have you ever known anybody to cut 15 at – no, they create a second team. And so there's that sense of, okay, well, we're going in the right direction. We're all heading in the right direction. It's like cattle being herded up for slaughter. The numbers – of mu- for musical chairs of youth baseball, they don't add up at the high school level. So they don't add up at the college level. But yet parents want to say, and this is why there's a mad rush for baseball academies. Why do you think all these travel organizations, and you can look them all up all over the country, there is a absolute mad dash to create postgraduate schools. And parents are like, I never even heard of postgraduate. Now I see it everywhere. Well, why do you think that is? Well, they want our sons to have extra years of high school, right, at 40000 a year, because there's no room at your high school. So if you go to their post-grad school, you're going to play. You're going to pay, and you're going to play. Yeah, you're going to have trainers and coaches and skill set guys. But all you're doing is extending the false narrative, not for everybody, 
I'm just talking about the the general population, not the elite stallions, the studs, talking about the general 80% of all of these student athletes that get past the age of 14 and they find out they don't have foot speed. They don't have arm strength. They don't have eye-hand coordination. They don't have ball strike capabilities. And they're just told, sorry, there's no room at the end. But we we never create that competition from early on. I love that never. you said, you know, there's no such thing anymore as a tryout. It seems like even in non-club, say, but travel, if you were on the 11U, this team, the coach calls you back next year, and you're the shortstop again. And then we want to keep all the boys together. So you're the shortstop again and again and again. Then all of a sudden you hit high school, and guess what? There's 15 shortstops. You don't know how to compete. You've never really had to try out because you've been on the same team, same position every year. So now you're pigeonholed against 15 guys. Some may be better, some may be worse. And even that, I get I get catchers all the time who get come in, and they've been put behind the plate for seven years on the same team. You hit them a ground ball, and they can't catch it. And they, now they're not a catcher. Right, because they're not good enough to be that catcher. Well, can I can I play first base? No, you can't catch the baseball. And so I'm really finding that like a a terrible dynamic that that there's no competition, there's no tryouts, but nobody really wants to step up and change that model, or at least the people who have maybe the control to, to change that model. And high school coaches in area say it too. Yeah, we get guys who maybe are studs growing up, but then they run into ten other studs, and they're just average guys. And I'm not sure how you change that. Well, the biggest thing that has to be done, the number one thing, if I were, if you gave me three wishes and, and the very first one I would do, we have to bring back multiple ages on a team. Now, I don't care if that's seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. I don't care if it's 10 through 12, but without the competition of bigger, stronger, faster athletes, nobody really knows. Like I always used to say to parents when they come at me with this, Is your son fast? Oh, my son is very fast. Okay, answer this question. Would he be faster if a pit bull was chasing him, or does he run that fast with or without the pit bull? Well, obviously, he'd be faster with the pit bull because he'd be chasing. There's no pit bull. In youth baseball, there's no pit bull at any point in time where they just go 6U, 7U, 8U, 9U. Jimmy's the shortstop at 9U. Guess what? Chances are Jimmy's going to be a shortstop till he's 13 and then when jimmy doesn't have the foot speed to play the middle infield anymore and he has the strong arm and the coach says hey we'd love you to catch or we'd like for you to go to right field or something like that all heck breaks loose and the thing is is we don't have competition because the money will always speak if you look at the hierarchy of most high-end travel ball programs inevitably there are people that are paying big dollars to get the uniform and to sit in that dugout, and their money is paying for the the show pony that is on the bump throwing you know cheese, and that kid pays nothing. But we say nothing. But yet that guy that's not paying a penny, he's taking innings away from the guy paying ten grand a wear a year. The thing is, is that competition is kryptonite, and if we don't bring the kryptonite out. Superman lives. Ultimately, the kryptonite is the high school varsity coach who says, yeah, I'm sorry, but you can't play short or second. You don't have the bat or the foot speed, maybe the outfield. And then, you know, parents, the kid breaks down. He goes to play lacrosse. The number one thing is, is we have no organization that monitors 
anything at all at the youth baseball levels. It used to be Little League, Babe Ruth, American Legion, and now there's nothing. And all these organizations are printing money hand over fist. If you take a look, tell me something. How old are you guys? I'm 36. And I'm 46. If you go to look at every organization, and I love Garcia Parra Baseball, Michael Garcia Parra, probably 46. Jeff Petty, probably 45. If I look at Andy with the dirt bags, and I can go on and on. You know, Joe Barth is a guy from New Jersey. He was probably the godfather of baseball in New Jersey. But all these guys that own these big Trotsky, all these guys that own these big money teams, they're all in their mid-40s. They've been doing it for 15, almost 20 years since they were young college guys coming out. It's a big, big, big money business that's not going to go away because there's nobody at the top telling them, oh, your hand's in the cookie jar. Sorry, you can't do that. And there's nobody going to stop or put uh, anything together. Everybody that's tried, you know, perfect game, gave way to PBR, PBR, future series, you know, PG-15, you know, all these events, millionaires. These guys are millionaires. They're literally millionaires. They tell you it's all done in the name of development. Tell me one guy that's been developed by the Canes national teams. And I'm going to use the Canes because my son played for the Canes. I love those guys. I think they're great. A lot of great coaches in their organization. They don't develop guys. They have a recruiting coordinator that calls guys and picks guys off of other teams. Hey, come play for us. We got a thousand guys in division one baseball, Northeast baseball in new England. They're, they're a Gestapo, but yet nobody stops them. Parents just hand them money, hand over fist. Not going to stop. So let's talk about that as we, you know, kind of get to that end of things, right? Like this. And I think a lot of what we're talking about leads to this D1 or bust mentality, right? And it's just such a disappointing uh, narrative in my mind, right? Because there are so many other great places where guys can go and have a great college baseball experience, get a good education, all that stuff. But we see it all the time, right? Like guys on Twitter, um, different social media and they're, they're okay baseball players, like in the middle of Utah or whatever. Um, but they're tagging these major division one schools in their, in their quote unquote highlights. Right. So do you think that is, is a lot of, of what we're talking about here is, is setting unrealistic expectations? Absolutely. If your marketing campaign for pick your travel ball team says we have a thousand division one players in our, you know, history, what do you think everybody's aiming for? But here's, a, here's the whole story. Musical chairs. Even with 40-man rosters, which just got implemented permanently this year, at the NCAA Division I level, there are 303 NCAA Division I baseball schools. Not all of them are fully funded, but if all of them carry 40, they all don't, but if we gave them that number, that means there's a little over 12,000 Division I baseball players. 303 schools need exactly one shortstop between the lines. That means in the entire country, let's just, we'll say two, there are 600 shortstops. So just start adding them up. They all start to add up, you know, 600 second basemen, maybe 600 third basemen. My point is 12,000, but yet we have almost a half a million student athletes playing high school baseball in the United States. In the state of Massachusetts, and this can all be, you can find this as a parent on College Baseball Insights, great software. 
It's 8,000 student-athletes that play varsity baseball in Massachusetts. Louisiana, there's like 8,000. I think Texas is something like 20,000. They all, all, everybody in the state of Texas wants to go to Texas Tech, Texas, you know, Christian, University of Texas, you know, Dallas Baptist. But my point is, they all can't go. But yet we are telling parents and student athletes, oh, yeah, we know the way because we have a thousand guys that played for us that have gone on to play Division I baseball. What they're not telling you is, is probably half of those guys right now are in the portal, you know, because they've grown up in this area. Of what do you mean? I'm you know I'm showing up in the fall and there's sixty LSU had a fall roster of over sixty student athletes. You show up in the fall at LSU and you're a pitcher and you look around. There's thirty eight guys trying out for fifteen spots. Hey, this isn't what you told me. Yeah, fall baseball now in the in college is a tryout and there's a bunch of walk on guys that want it worse than anything in the world. So they don't care how much of a scholarship you have. So my point is, is that the narrative of travel baseball does not fit the reality of college baseball, but we're selling the sizzle of college baseball to parents of six-year-olds. I just had a phone call the other day with a parent from Mississippi of a seven-year-old child that as a six-year-old played for their elite team. That's what they were called. And as a seven-year-old, you know, the parents didn't want to drive two hours from Mississippi to Louisiana. And they were told they were making a big mistake because their organization is heavily followed by college coaches. This is the parent of a seven-year-old. So this stuff isn't just for 13 through 18-year-olds. This stuff happens all across travel baseball. You know, and if every any parent that thinks this is an embellishment or an exaggeration... I'm not even scratching the surface. I mean, I talk to college coaches every single week. I mean, I'm talking every Thursday. I'm talking to a college coach live on, on, on my YouTube channel. But I'm talking to lots of coaches throughout the week. The number one thing they tell me in the fall is I spend more time teaching kids how to compete and be part of a team than I do about how to play a position or a sport. Now, if you thought about that deeper, that's a problem. That's the problem with the game. Yeah, it's an absolute problem. But that's the scary thing, Walter, is that it's the reality. Like, that's what scares me. I understand I'm I'm a problem solver. We look at that and we're like, wow, that's such a problem. It's this massive thing. But it's like you said, no one's willing to break that reality up. It's like we will continue to if, if you've never had to try it, if you've never had to compete, and now you're tagging this uh, Power 5 school, well, you don't know any better because you've always been able to be shortstop. So why can't I be shortstop at this Power 5 school? Plus, I'm paying this big money, and this guy's telling me, yeah, you're a good ball player. Well, you know, we've sent people there before. Maybe you're the next. Well, maybe you are, but maybe you're not. In fact, the percentages are you're probably not. But we're not doing assessments. We're, and, and when I talk assessment, I love skill set. But I'm also talking academically. I'm also talking socially. I'm also talking physically. I'm also talking about the skill set. Because you're a great baseball player doesn't mean you can play power five. What if you don't have the grades to get into a division one? What if, what if, what if you're not willing to move away from home because it's too far? But this, it, it just doesn't make sense. And that's our problem is like, we have to get this education out to people. And once again, it's not that we're trying to be the police of baseball because I'm not interested in that. But what I am interested in is getting people information. Then they can make their choice. If you make a choice still to go down that road, 
That's okay. But at least you had the information to make the right choice. And if you choose to, and who am I to say it's right or wrong? But now you have the information. But if we're not able to funnel that, even the just the word competitiveness, there are six you, seven you parents who truly and 100% honestly believe that they have to do that and to me that's immoral to me that is is unethical and to me that is what's tearing youth baseball from the inside out well i will tell you you know when you start talking about tagging you know um college coaches seven years ago i was asked to speak uh at a little league banquet and at that banquet i said to parents travel baseball consider it like kindling. And I said, social media is gasoline. I said, when that match gets struck, used to be you would take your time and the fire would begin and you'd use the kindling and boom, you'd have a nice little roaring fire. Well, now with social media, we're, you know, we're getting bonfires. We're getting these mega fires because families feel like these coaches and these, these programs are accessible. You know, you see them on Twitter, you see them type, you see their pictures of their children. So they're, they're accessible. So let me tag every coach and he's going to get flooded with these things. On one hand, social media is a good way to be informed. On the other hand, it can be abused. And so you use words that I use all the time, immoral, uh, unethical. We don't hold anyone accountable. What happens when that little boy at six gets to be the 18-year-older and he gets run over because he, there's, no, there's no college coaches talking to him and he really didn't play high school? And he looks back and he goes, what, did, what happened? You know, where did it go wrong? Where did I go wrong? How, you know, and so nobody is looking these young athletes or their parents in the eyes and saying, he loves the game. He has a passion. He just doesn't have the skill set necessary to play, not only at a power five school, but just college baseball. We, I was a division three head coach for seven years. Uh, and I stopped because my son called, my youngest son called me and said, I just hit my first home run over a fence. And I had to make a decision. Am I going to watch my sons grow up and play or am I going to coach? And so, you know, but nobody I ever recruited said to me, I can't wait to play NCAA Division Three baseball. Every young man wants to play Division One baseball. But when you learn that JUCO, NAIA, NCAA Division Three, Two, One, they're all really good. The separator is depth. A Division One team in a P5 school, they can roll out arm after arm after arm, whereas Division Two, II, Division Three, NAIA, they might have one or two show ponies, and then after that, there's a dramatic drop-off. But college baseball, college athletics as a whole, is nothing like showcase tournament baseball. It's a business. It requires discipline. It requires structure. It re requires routine. It requires mental discipline and toughness. Where along the lines of travel baseball is there any of that? It, there really isn't. And so we're not really teaching children to compete and to understand how to train physically and mentally. We're training them to, okay, we're going to play in the cookie cutter world series this weekend. Ah, oh, we didn't win, but next weekend we have the, uh, you know, elf 
you know, trophies that they're going to give out for the elite World Series or regional World Series. There's no World Series. There's no championships. You're not playing anything that's structured or routine. If you pay to get in, you go and play. That's not how college or high school baseball is. You don't. They don't care how much money you make or how much money you want to pay. All they care about is we're competing to win. These coaches' jobs are on the line. They're livelihoods. But yet, that's not what we teach. And we don't teach team. We. We teach more about the me. In the world as a whole, if you really get down to it, social media is look at me. It has nothing to do with look at us. It's look at me. And you can just tell, look at the proliferation of videos that are on social media of me grinding. You're taking batting practice. You're hitting off a tee. Big leaguers do that. It's a requirement that you're not grinding. You know, that's where I think the business of travel baseball, the ranking systems, um, all these evaluations from random people, they hold no relevance long term. Thank you for joining the Now You Know podcast, part one interview with Walter Beatty. In part two, we talk about the role of parents within the youth, high school and collegiate recruiting process. Also taking an in-depth look at a parent's responsibilities to the athlete in the game. This is a great listen to help you as parents and players understand the ins and outs from an expert in the process, Walter Beatty. Part two is available now.